BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. There we go. We're up. Should we call John? Hello, I'm Louis Theroux, and welcome to my new podcast series for Radio 4, Grounded, with Louis Theroux. I'll try and keep this one a bit shorter. Like you, I'm in lockdown. But as it turns out, so too are many people I've always been keen to talk to, which leaves me with a laptop, a dodgy microphone, and the vagaries of the interweb to try and make a connection. This looks promising. Hello, there's John. Yeah, it's working. I'm relying on my guests to record their half of our conversations. Is the meter flickering? Yes, and, and it seems to be perfect. It's stopping just before the red. And we get to see each other via state-of-the-art video conferencing software downloaded from the nether regions of the web. When somebody talks, does the machine somehow know? Like when you talked just then, Louis, you came up full screen. Is that how Zoom works? That's one of the options. Zoom must be making so much money right now, don't you think? I don't quite understand why everybody suddenly, like, jumped ship from Skype and FaceTime. My first guest is someone I've known and admired for many years, who's pursued similar interests to me, a kind of professional doppelganger or even rival documentary maker who chronicles the weird, an author who delves into the darker areas of our society, and more recently a Hollywood screenwriter of some repute. He grew up in Cardiff in a Jewish family and now lives in upstate New York. He is, of course, John Ronson. Do you know who I had my very first ever Skype conversation with? The first time I ever had like a video conversation with anyone. Robbie Williams. I'd never met him. And he just popped up on my computer. It was quite intimidating. You chased UFOs together, didn't you? Yeah. That particular call was he wanted to spend a night in a haunted house and wanted me to facilitate it for him. I don't know. Will I tell you this story? I have time. You have to be conscious of your precious time and what will be the best allocation of anecdote during the time available. Yeah. Well, I have all the time in the world. Um, well, tell me the story, then. OK. Everyone loves Robbie Williams, and the idea of Robbie Williams chasing ghosts, I think, is irresistible. OK, I'll leave out the UFO part of it. I'll just tell you the less well-known ghost part. It began with me getting a telephone call from Catelyn Moran. She left a message saying, stay by your phone, Robbie Williams is going to phone. And I thought... That's much too stressful. So I turned off my phone and I went for dinner. And when I got back, there was this very long message from Robbie Williams saying that he wanted to spend a night in a haunted house. Could I set one up for him? So then I had the Skype call. I started emailing ladies of the manor saying, you know, dear lady, blah, I hear that if the portrait in your drawing room is moved, a ghost manifests itself. I have been contacted by the pop star Robbie Williams who wants to spend a night in a haunted house and I thought, like, no-one would get back to me. 100% of the people I emailed emailed back straight away to say that their houses are definitely haunted and Robbie can spend the night whenever he wants to, so I got it all set up. And then Rob changed his mind and said he didn't want to spend a night in a haunted house after all. That's awful. Yeah, I thought, no wonder Robbie Williams and ghosts get on so well, they both only manifest themselves when it suits them. And how convenient that ghosts are more available to celebrities with cachet. You know, one suspects that a lesser booking 
might have failed to get so many ghosts turning up for them. I felt that they were like throwing their ghosts at Robbie as if they were their debutante daughters. Makes me think a bit less of ghosts, if I'm completely honest. Um, thank you for doing this, John. I really appreciate it. Let's get the corona virus out of the way. How are you doing over there? I think you live upstate New York, is that right? Yeah, I'm very lucky, very privileged. I've got a whole bunch of privileges that a lot of other people don't have. I've got a garden. There's no familial abuse. People are finding out new things about their relationships on lockdown. I'm pleased to say that family flare-ups here tend to be between parents and children and not intra-parental, although it's not unheard of. You get tetchy, of course you do. There's a lot of tension. I think there's a lot of unacknowledged tension. Like a lot of men, I don't know what I'm feeling half the time. And then suddenly I notice, oh, wow, I'm shouting and rushing around and banging things. I think I must be in a bad mood. Well, we did have a big fight yesterday. Our first big fight was yesterday. After being in lockdown for like nearly a month, so it's not bad going. That's excellent. Yeah, we had a big first big fight yesterday about a bird feeder. I saw like someone on Twitter was posting pictures of like, you know, birds feeding outside his office window. And I thought that's adorable. So I went into like the next room and I said, I'm going to get a bird feeder like outside the window. And she nixed it. She said like, no way, if you get a bird feeder, you'll attract rats. And I got, like, really annoyed, thinking that's just what her mother said when we wanted to get dogs. She was like, well, if you get dogs, they'll die eventually and you'll be upset. And I'm like, well, what about the joy of watching the birds feed? Anyway, so we had a big fight about it. I said that she was trying to control my ambition to have a bird feeder. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, then she went out and saw a neighbour... And they had, like, a social distanced conversation and the neighbour took her side and said, yeah, they had a bird feeder and it attracted rats and things started nesting in the walls. So we then came back all triumphalist, say, you see. One of the worst arguments my wife and I had was about me finishing an avocado. (laughs) We were both quite hungry and I just went off to the kitchen. I wouldn't say I sneaked off to the kitchen. I was in the kitchen and I just ate the last avocado. She said, well, where's the rest of it? I said something along the lines of, in my tummy. And it got quite full on. I'm not proud of it. I mean, the anger was, I'd allege, coming maybe more from her. But at the same time, it really wasn't about avocado, was it? It was about something else. Well, actually, with my argument with the lady over the bird feeder, for me, it was about something else. It was about being able to make autonomous decisions. Yes. But for her, it was actually about the bird feeder. A lot of arguments come under the heading autonomy, right? I'm a grown man, I'm an old man, and it feels ridiculous to be sort of cringing and asking permission for things that it seems like normal people are allowed to do. That was where I was coming from. (laughs) Also, for some reason, I've always had a thing about, like, I don't want to be controlled, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do, so it was feeding into that sort of well of weirdness of not wanting to be controlled. It sounds like, by and large, you're doing well, though. Personally speaking, I'm fine, and it's a weird phenomenon, which I'm sure you've noticed a couple of people have written about it now, the people with anxiety disorders are coping especially well in this situation. 
Do you put yourself in that class? Are you diagnosed with an anxiety disorder? I was diagnosed last year with something called adjustment disorder, which was like a mix of panic attacks and anxiety and a little bit of what they call situational depression, which is like nowhere near as bad as other sorts of depression because it just goes away as soon as you change, you know, the difficult situation that you're in. And it's a strange thing that you spend your life catastrophizing in the most kind of absurd ways. You know, I can think of so many ridiculous, insane thoughts I've had. Like when Joel was about sort of seven, I remember turning up at his primary school and the door was closed and there was like nobody about. And I immediately assumed that there'd been a terrorist gas attack. So you think, well, what's the point? Why is your brain taking you to these kind of terrible places? But maybe, you know, the coronavirus is the answer to that question. It's preparation for an actual catastrophe. Because when the coronavirus started, like a lot of people with anxiety... I found myself sort of very, like, calm and focused. It's like, OK, I've been preparing for this my whole life, so this is what I have to do and this is what I have to do and, and dealt with it very well. It may be an evolutionary advantage that the ambient anxiety inoculates you against full-blown meltdown when a real panic hits. Yeah. Anxiety worries are always what-if worries. You know, psychologists will say the way that you can differentiate a real anxiety from an irrational anxiety is if it starts with a what if. This reminds me of something you once said. I quote you sometimes on this, Louis. Oh, wow. I feel very honoured. I'm curious to see what it is. Well, people have asked me, if you've got anxiety, how come you spend so much time with, you know, Nazis and, you know, putting yourself in these dangerous situations? I quote you and I say, you know, that somebody asked you that question once and you said, not doing it feels worse. Mm. And I think that's sort of all wrapped up in the whole catastrophizing thing because when I go and see Nazis, I'm not nervous at all. I feel very calm. OK, this is an actual perilous situation, so I'm going to deal with it in a very calm way. Whereas if I don't do it and I've missed out on a story, what would have happened if I'd done the stories? You know, so so the, the irrational anxiety is all wrapped up in not doing the story. Do, do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I don't know that I have anything like what you have, but what I'm aware of is I get, I think, probably very normal sorts of anxiety about events looming on the horizon, often performances, if I'm going on stage to do something. But even sort of relatively low-key, things like organising a party or making a phone call that's somehow taking me out of my routine, Mm. all of those cause me quite a bit of manageable anxiety, but to the point where I might resist doing them, I procrastinate or allowing my wife to make social arrangements and just sort of slipstreaming behind her. And I think in that respect, this new kind of lockdown, you don't wake up in the morning and thinking, oh, what hurdles do I have to jump today? You wake up and feel a little bit of reassurance that you're not really going to have to do much of anything other than make meals, clear up, keep the kids in line, that it will be another day of sort of non-events. Yeah, I've got a feeling like when all this is over, yeah, everyone's like, what's the first thing we're going to do when all this is over? I doubt this is just me. I think a lot of people are going to want to kind of try and find a way to continue this lifestyle. Let me ask you, you've been in lockdown for nearly a month. Yeah, the very last thing I did in civilization was, uh, I've not not told anyone this, the very last thing I did in civilization was get my uh, certificate of citizenship. I went to the very last 
flag ceremony at the immigration people. Am I talking to an American right now? Naturalised citizen, like you. Well, I'm an American by birth, so I'm binational. But did you have to renounce your British citizenship? No, you don't need to do that. Is this so they stop calling you Welsh journalist John Ronson? That is always a little odd, because I left... I did leave Cardiff when I was, like, 17. <laughs> You've got to be the least Welsh Welshman. I don't have a Welsh accent. Every so often I see people, like, Americans writing about my lovely Welsh accent. <laughs> Can you do a Welsh accent? No. I don't think I had a Welsh accent growing up either. My memory of Cardiff, like, growing up, back in the 70s, I think it had a bit of a sort of identity crisis. It didn't know whether it wanted to be Welsh or English. So Cardiff didn't feel particularly Welsh when I was growing up. And then at some point, maybe in the late 70s or early 80s, it kind of regained its sort of self-love and suddenly everything became more Welsh. But I don't remember Cardiff being particularly Welsh when I was growing up. Does that explain why you didn't have the accent or is there another more mysterious reason? Well, both my parents were English. My dad was from London. I used to go back and forward to London all the time as a kid. Were you an only child, John? No, I had an older brother, Daniel. Does he work in journalism? No, he's like a businessman. There's only one other Ronson who was ever in this line of work, and that was my auntie Mavis, who was a photographer, who, when she was 19, went around the world and took photos of, like, the Rolling Stones and the Dalai Lama and got involved in, like, drug smugglers and all of that stuff. So she was, I suppose, the little light at the end of the tunnel. Like, if that Ronson can go off and do that stuff, maybe this Ronson can too. What about Mick Ronson? Not a relative, although when I met Mark Ronson... <laughs> Mick Ronson, of course, guitarist for David Bowie yeah. and Spider from Mars, really. He was a spider, I suppose. Me, great spider. But when I met Mark Ronson not too long ago... Mark Ronson is Jewish, I think. I don't think Mick Ronson was, but I might be wrong. I don't know what's telling me that. I don't think he was... But, no, we figured out that we weren't related, me and Mark Ronson, but we both felt like we might as well be cousins because there's just so few Ronsons. And, and just having the same surname might be, like, enough of a connection. Is Ronson an anglicised name? Yeah, Aronson, double A at the, at the top. Of course. I mean, imagine at school, if you were, like, playing truant at school and your surname began with two A's, you'd be the first one caught. <laughs> You would be first in line for a lot of things, good and bad, I suppose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Names being anglicised is a testament to people experiencing bigotry, right? It's an attempt to avoid nasty cultural assumptions. I would have thought, I assume that that's what it was. Yeah, the story is that they were on their way from Eastern Europe to New York, but they ran out of money in Cardiff and stopped... So I guess, like, 100 years later, I completed the journey. You did? That's a beautiful... That's be you actually said a beautiful... That's a kind of poetic... <laughs> How do you feel? Like, are you feeling quite American? Presumably they were quizzing you on who won the Civil War and... Yep, I got every question right. What were some of the questions? I'd be curious to know whether I could... Luckily, they can't disqualify me. Some of them are, like, stupidly easy, like, what's the ocean on the east coast of America... What's the ocean on the east coast of America, Louis? That would be the Atlantic. Correct. OK, I'm going to ask you a, bit, a couple more difficult ones. I had a little tiny little squirt of panic <laughs> when I said Atlantic. After I'd said it, I was like, oh, I said the wrong one, didn't I? North Atlantic, if you want me, I can do this. Yeah. How long does a senator sit for? OK, that's a trick question because there's two periods of time. They can either sit for 
Oh, I started so well. Don't they sit for either two years or six years? Senators sit for six years. Congress people sit for two years. Oh, is it always six years? Always six years for a senator. Well, can I have half a point? No, you can't, because you got it totally wrong. All right, fine. Go, give me another one. What's the last day for filing taxes in America? April 15th? Correct. I do file taxes in America, as well as the UK. Yeah, me too. One more question. Um, it's funny, you forget straight away as soon as it's... A little bit like journalism. Lynn Barber said this about journalism once. I wonder whether it's true for you too, that when you're doing a story, you are a world expert on every aspect of that story. You know everything. And then the minute you deliver the story... You just forget it all. It's a sad state of affairs. I look at essays I wrote at university and it's as though they were written by someone else. It's like Guy Pearce in Memento wrote them. You wake up and you think, I have no idea what this is about. Do you ever think that about your previous documentaries? Bowie said that about Ziggy Stardust. He said, like, when he looked back on Ziggy Stardust, he had no idea how he ever came up with the character. It's like another person. I think because I sit with the material for so long and there's so much reviewing and tweaking and reviewing that the finished version sort of beds in, but it almost replaces and drives out the real experience. And so when you look at the rushes, scenes that you imagined happened more or less as they appear in the finished film actually play out quite differently. To give you an example, there's a bit in a programme I did called Louis and the Nazis where a skinhead called Skip starts demanding to know whether I'm Jewish. Oh, yeah, you're sitting outside. Yeah, after a barbecue. And you refuse. I'd made a decision early on, before filming, that I wouldn't say whether or not I was Jewish, that some of them might think I was Jewish, and it would create a helpful friction for the project, as well as being a sort of principled stand. Yeah. And that actual scene with the skinhead was the last day of the shoot. And until then, the idea of me being Jewish or not Jewish hadn't really been an issue... At least they hadn't made it an issue. But on that day, the skinheads got drunk, well, Skip did specifically, and began grilling me and saying, are you a Jew? You've been in my house exposing me. Expose yourself. You look kind of greasy. You look kind of Jewish. Are you a Jew? By that time, I was thinking, well, I've sort of already made my stand. It'll look weak to back down. Mm. But when I looked at the rushes, it turned out I'd sort of goaded Skip a bit. And there's a moment where I say, like, Skip, here we are sitting in your backyard, having a nice time, relaxing, having a drink, some burgers. I might be Jewish. I might not be. (laughs) But what's so wrong about this? So I I seeded it. I seeded it. And I'd I'd totally forgotten. Did you feel bad about that when you look back or did you think that was okay? I felt quite pleased with it because my biggest fear is that I have no no art, that I stumble around and film for long enough and then grab the moments. But there's no real... um, I worry that I'm given too much credit and that there's a million people who could do my job. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, yeah, I do do something. I actually did kind of make that moment happen. We were talking about that because... Uh, Jews, Nazis, feeling bad, that tends to be... That's pretty much the stock in trade. Yeah. Oh, Americans... Are you feeling American? Am I feeling American? After a bad first year, I really love it. The, the first year was bad, 
I felt very displaced and it made me realise just what a fine line there is between confidence and no confidence. And, you know, because when we first moved to New York, it was like starting again from scratch and I just lost, you know, I felt like a child, you know. I feel like that in America most of the time. Right. All that pomp that you have from feeling like you're sort of successful is stripped away. You're actually back to square one. I went through a whole year of feeling that. I feel like that every time I write a book, you know. If I write a book and it's good, it gives me no confidence at all. It's like with every book, I feel like I have to start again from scratch. Are you like that with films? Not so much. I am with writing. I write occasionally. I've got a book out at the moment, which I think you probably haven't read. You're mentioned in it. Oh. In the second or third draft, when I was writing this section about I was living in New York, I'd done my TV Nation segments with Michael Moore. Then the BBC had given me a development deal. And they kept sending me travelogues that were successful on the BBC. And I found them sort of a bit too composed and not very exciting. And what I say is that the only thing that I'd seen on TV that felt in any way relevant to what I hoped to do was a series called The Ronson Mission. And there was something in Ronson's awkwardness, but his slyness and the way his shows always felt as though they were in motion that appealed to me. So that's in print. Oh, well, thank you, because, you know, we used to have something of a rivalry. Or, or you know, I, I felt that towards the beginning in the 90s. I think I feel it more now, now that you're successful in America. Oh. I feel it a little more strongly. I think rivalry is one of those things that tends to be felt by the junior partner. <laughs> it's like I'm very good at winning, but not good at losing. Right. I never saw it as destructive, though, our rivalry. We were like, you know, this is the difference between having a nemesis and having an enemy, right? An, an enemy is it's negative and a nemesis is positive because yeah. having a nemesis forces you to work harder. But thank you for saying that. I was thinking about this before we had the chat and I was thinking, as much as I like you, and as I hope you know, as much as I admire you, there's a little part of me that continues to feel a bit of rivalry and there's some nastiness mixed in with it which I don't endorse, which I would love to, if I could pull it out, if I could weed it out, I would do it. I don't feel that way at all anymore. I did in the 90s. It's neither one of our faults, you know. It's not like either one of us ever stole any ideas from the other one. Like, neither one of us ever plagiarised the other one. Yet, time and again, over decades, we've done really similar stories. Mm. Somebody wrote about this, like, 20 years ago. Isn't it strange that culture has brought up two people at pretty much exactly the same time whose brains work in pretty much exactly the same way? You know, he was talking about us two. And that is going like, to have an impact on somebody, I suppose, if you suddenly find you have a doppelganger working in the same industry as you. Just to be clear, you know, I don't know if you know this, I've read, I think, every book you've written, so my presiding feeling is one of warmth and admiration. But undoubtedly, you know, as someone who... I, 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 if I've done anything in my life, it's attempt to be honest about the nasty or the dark or the more shameful feelings that we all have in us. So I think that that's in there as well. We, do, how, do, how far did we get with the American? We veered off a bit. Do you have a sense of whether America is responding to the pandemic differently than the UK. What strikes me is, in the UK, there's this national myth to do with the Blitz, right, and the Blitz spirit. And so, as awful as things get, it kind of gives us a reserve of courage that we feel that this is something we've been through before, even those of us who have no memory of it, mm. and that we're good at this somehow, that this is what we specialise in dealing with adversity stoically and with grace. 
Yeah, in America, I think a similar kind of rose-tinted view of the past is the common good. I think that's, that's the American version of the blitz spirit, the idea of, you know, neighbours helping neighbours. You know, the age of the self really only began in, what, mid-60s? And it didn't really turn into a thing until the 70s. Before that, the idea of the romantic version of America was founded on the idea of the common good. And so I think that that's coming to life. It's similar to the blitz spirit, neighbours helping out neighbours and so on. I'm glad to hear that. There was a part of me that worried that in America, because there's such a sense, and maybe I'm speaking more about Los Angeles, a sense of a slight bunker mentality to do with residing in a comfortable house, moving from house to car and defending yourself and standing your ground, that some of that social fabric had disappeared. You know, that, that sort of competitive individualism that part of that might be leaving the less well-off to fend for themselves. Of course, you know, one thing that this is showing is the old iniquities are all still there. I mean, it was a hideous truth that in places where African-Americans only make up 30% of the population, 70% of the people dying are African-Americans. At first you think, well, you know, if the virus is the great leveller, how is that? And the answer is because... The healthcare system over here is such that poorer people have more pre-existing conditions. And then you have to think, well, is society going to learn from this? I mean, given that we're back at sort of year one, in a way, and we do have the possibility to remake society in a better way, now that all of these things have become so obvious, will we? And I've got a feeling that we probably won't. I think there'll be a period of... Everybody trying to act more in the common good, helping each other, trying to make the world fairer, more egalitarian. And then the old power structures will just weed all their way back in and things will go back to how they were before. That's my fear. One thing I've noticed is the way in which certain Hollywood disaster film cliches or, or tropes are being deployed in the real world now. And that we feel a bit like, oh, we've seen this movie before. Day 14 of the crisis and the pandemic has spread to India and Iran. And then people in weird queues outside supermarkets wearing masks. I can't put my finger on what film it is, but it feels weirdly familiar. Yeah. Although, you know, the difference, of course, between the pandemic disaster movies and what's actually happening in real life is that frequently in those disaster movies, it ends up with neighbours arming themselves and boarding up the gates and scared of other neighbours breaking in to steal the food. Now, I'm not saying that won't necessarily happen in the coming months. But what is happening is people helping each other. All the school teachers in my village drive around every day, the kids' houses, and, like, cheer out the window and hold up signs that say, we miss you. And people applauding the NHS at 8 o'clock at night. None of that happens in the disaster films. So it shows that the disaster films have a worse view of human nature. It's interesting in the... For all the terribleness that's happening... It gives the world the opportunity to remake things better after it's over. So we're almost halfway through this podcast. By the way, you're listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. And it's at this point in my conversation with John Ronson that I steered us onto conspiracy theories, a subject John's covered extensively, most notably when he profiled America's leading proponent of conspiracies, the radio host Alex Jones, who, among other things, has promoted the idea that the Sandy Hook school shooting, in which 27 people lost their lives, 20 of them small children, was a hoax. 
John's also covered Britain's very own David Icke, so I wanted to see if he'd been following the various conspiracy theories to do with COVID-19. A little. One of my neighbours up here sent me a YouTube clip of a doctor who believes in the 5G conspiracy theories. I only watched it once and my mind drifted a little bit, but I'm sure at one point in this video he said that the 1918 flu wasn't contagious, that they tried to replicate it in labs and they couldn't give anybody else the 1918 flu. Now, I've not done any Googling, but I can't help thinking if that was true, we'd know. That is definitely cobblers. It seemed like a very untrue fact to me. And what's he saying? What's his thing? Okay, there seems to be, and this is like half knowledge, or as my wife would call it, Metro knowledge. My wife is one of the people who set up Metro, the newspaper. So like a very superficial partial knowledge is what I have on this. But some really hardcore conspiracy theorists are saying that the whole thing is a fraud and it's all to do with 5G. 5G is giving us the virus... It's keeping us indoors so they can, like, build more 5G towers. And then there's, like, a middle ground conspiracy theory, which is, no, no, okay, the coronavirus is real, but 5G is making us more vulnerable to it. This doctor that my neighbour sent me the video of said that the very first city in the world to be fully 5G was Wuhan. And, you know, when you first hear that, you go, ooh. But it's still nonsense. There's no 5G in Iran, to my knowledge, and Iran has a huge number of cases. So it's all bollocks. It's cobblers. I usually don't say condescending things about conspiracy theorists because I do think conspiracy theorists are more than just not smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even think there's a correlation there. I think there's not smart ones and smart ones, right? Yeah, I think so too. Because somebody said the other day, conspiracy theories are for stupid people to feel smart. I don't buy that. I mean, I think there's maybe in a couple of cases, but there's also a whole bunch of other reasons. You know, you get a rise of conspiracy theories when power elites behave more conspiratorial for a start. It may be different to what they think the narrative is, but there seems to always be a correlation, or often a correlation, between our leaders behaving in conspiratorial manners and the rise of conspiracy theories. There's also, I think, probably some mental disorders. I was going to say that. I'm sure there's a predisposition to see patterns in data in which there perhaps isn't a pattern, I would have thought. Yeah, there is. I think it's called schizotypal disorder, which one of the symptoms is exactly that. Another theory, obviously unfounded, is that the master plan is for Bill Gates to roll out a vaccine that has a chip in it that allows the government to track us. Right, yes. Had you heard that one? Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, another way of spotting when conspiracy theories aren't true is talking about patterns, they're quite often templates of previous conspiracy theories. This is one of my big issues with Alex Jones. I'm going to have many, but he takes the template and just puts whatever catastrophic world event is happening into it. I remember when I was a kid, my slightly conspiratorial grandparents would say, oh, they're putting fluoride in the water to make us all stupid. So, you know, this 5G conspiracy theory is basically just the fluoride in the water conspiracy theory in a different generation. You spent quite a bit of time with David Icke, didn't you? And and I should remind people that he has espoused and I think still believes that there's an elite that is pulling the strings here on Earth, the power behind the scenes of most governments of a kind of global new world order, and that they are reptilian, 
shapeshifters, quite literally. Yes, who've adopted human form. Yeah, because I wanted David Icke to sneak into Bohemian Grove with me. And he demurred. Bohemian Grove being the sort of retreat at which the influential and powerful elites actually do gather. That is real, but for a sort of bonding and ideas session somewhere in California. With a weird ritual on the Saturday night where they all dress up in robes and hoods and have a ceremony that culminates in a papier-mâché effigy being thrown into a bonfire in front of a giant stone owl. So when I first heard about that, I thought, oh, I'll ask David Icke if he wants to try and sneak in with me. And he said no, because that was where they transformed themselves back into giant lizards. And he was worried? He said people vanished. He said, be very careful, people disappear in those forests. So are you sort of a hero in his eyes for actually having the guts to go in there? No, although the last time I saw David Icke, I bumped into him in the toilet at Heathrow Airport and he uh, gave me a big hug, which is very nice. So so he he bears me no ill will. Let me ask you, Lou, how do you feel if you make a film... I know this is a broad question because there's various different levels of culpability in your interviewees, but if somebody really hates how they came over in your film, do you worry about it? It doesn't feel nice and... It does happen. We were talking about the programme I made about Joe Exotic and people who keep tigers. We also profiled a couple who kept a pair of chimpanzees in a big cage at the bottom of the garden. And when we went round there, one was big and one was little. The little one came out and ate some, I think, Chinese food and they gave him a bath and he waddled around in a nappy and it was quite fun and sort of ridiculous. Then when they brought out the big one, we were all on the team a bit nervous about it. And what ended up happening was we hid in the house, in the kitchen. And we said, look, let's acclimatise him. And when he, they wanted us to see him swimming in the swimming pool. He's the only chimpanzee that can swim. He's phenomenal. You're so lucky. You're going to get a chance to meet the world's only swimming chimpanzee. We're like, well, that's great. But we'd read such a lot about chimpanzees attacking humans. Can I interrupt and ask, did you also read anything about whether other chimpanzees can swim? Or was this really the only swimming chimpanzee in the world? That's a good question, John, and I don't even think I did. I think I was so preoccupied with the physical danger that the fact of him either swimming or not swimming really didn't seem very interesting to me, (laughs) you know? I mean, I know there's chimpanzees that can ride a bike... So that seems even more extraordinary than swimming. Like, swimming seems quite low. Dogs can swim. Yeah. I guess if it's amazing that none of them can swim, but it didn't seem that remarkable to me. So we hid in the kitchen, right? And then they bring him out. And if memory serves, I may have this slightly wrong, they gave him a Coke or a beer, and he started drinking that. And then he did something else, like hopped in the hot tub, for a bit, we're filming from behind a window and then he wanders over to us, spots us, sort of cowering in the kitchen and then beats on the window, on the glass of the window, smashes it and then we're freaking out. And then I think he freaks himself out because he's beat on Perspex before. Right. And he's never seen it smash. Right. So he's like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. And then he retreats. I don't think he did it in anger. I think he beat on that glass in the way that You know, you might just tap on a piece of wood. But it felt aggressive in the moment because of the smash and the clatter. And then he wandered off. It cut into quite a nice scene because it was so strange. And the funniest bit of the scene is me saying, I think maybe we've we've got everything we need now, so we're thinking perhaps we'll just get on our way. The subtext was, 
I'm completely freaked out and I want to go. Mm-hmm. But when it went out, the couple who owned the chimpanzees were very upset. And they sent us a letter saying, you had a chance to show on TV the world's only swimming chimpanzee. You blew it, Louis. You're a disgrace. You completely misrepresented what it was you intended to do. And it was a long, passionate letter saying, you did wrong by us and we're upset. And it, you know, it doesn't feel nice when that happens. And you check yourself and you run an inventory on what did we do? Did we do anything wrong? I don't know that we did anything wrong. It was basically just one of those things where um, mm. we were on slightly different pages. Yeah. I think it goes with the territory that some people are not going to like how they come out. Yeah, yeah. I worry about this stuff a lot. I guess, I mean, we have to. None of this is to say that I would... Well... My last show, The Last Days of August. About the porn industry and the suicide of a young porn performer. You sort of did a investigation into what led to that, yeah. And that was, you know, it couldn't have been a more difficult, sensitive, anxiety-inducing subject. And we didn't skirt around it, we went for it. I mean, this is a kind of success story in terms of what we were just talking about because we made the show that was the right show to make and everybody in it was happy with us and that was such a relief. Like, I worry a lot about this. I actually think you can probably worry too much about it. You know, there's something in anxiety disorders called scrupulosity, which is like worrying too much about ethical things. And I think there's a danger in not worrying enough about it and there's a danger in worrying too much about it. I definitely agree with that. Before we move on from Ike, Uh do you think David Ike really believes that there are shape-shifting lizards running the world? Yes. I remember he was sitting next to Ted Heath once, the old British Prime Minister, and he looked over at Ted Heath and Ted Heath had like a sort of nasty look on his face, like an evil glint in his eye. And David Ike took that look to be a little clue of his lizardness underneath. How does he decide who are the lizards and who aren't the lizards? That's interesting, because I remember he thought that Cherie Blair was a lizard, but Tony Blair wasn't a lizard. I think he does their genealogy. I remember he thought Chris Christopherson was a lizard, but presumably not Willie Nelson. Because Chris Christopherson was a Rhodes Scholar? I think it's partly to do with genealogy, and it is, yeah, it's partly to do with clubs that they were part of. So if you're part of the Bilderberg group or whatever, then you're probably more likely to be a lizard if you're on that, the steering committee. But yeah, I believe he's sincere. I never thought Alex Jones was sincere, but I do now. 20 years ago, when I snuck into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones, you know, which is a secret campground for the ruling elite, afterwards he told me he was walking like down one of these paths and he overheard two men of wealth and power say to each other, yeah, we're going to get him elected. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Alex Jones would have dreamed of hearing at Bohemian Grove. So I called him out on it. This was just the two of us talking. And he said to me, yeah, you know, I know that's not true, but I'm not going to tell my listeners that. So for 20 years, I took that as evidence that Alex Jones was a charlatan who didn't believe the things that he was saying. But about a year or two ago... I got to know somebody who worked for Alex Jones every day for years, a guy called Josh Owens, who wanted to become a whistleblower. And I said that to him, but he looked really surprised and said, no, I've been with Alex Jones every day for the last four years. And the way he is on camera and the way he is off camera is exactly the same. It's not fake. So I've revised my opinion on Alex Jones's hypocrisy. I mean, Alex Jones has been, over the years, 
given a platform to views including the idea that Sandy Hook, the, the massacre of these children at a school in Connecticut, that that was a hoax, that it never happened, right? He was a Sandy Hook truther, is the term. He went on his show and showed a map of one of the houses of the parents who'd lost a child at Sandy Hook and said, I may have to go there myself. Then lots of his fans started stalking the parents of kids who were killed. It's incredible. This is why I don't have much sympathy for Alex being deplatformed. I don't have really any sympathy for Alex being deplatformed because this was actual harm that was going on. I was going to ask about that. So YouTube has now erased or taken down the David Icke video, which, of course, many conspiracy theorists will interpret as evidence that he got too close to the truth, right? And the powers that be are frightened. They couldn't handle it. Do you take a view on, I suppose, A, the ethics of doing that? You know, is it right that the video is taken down ethically or B, just pragmatically? Well, I don't know the content of the David Icke one, so I don't know how far he went or what he said. But in terms of Alex and Sandy Hook, which is, I suppose, my one moment of deplatforming that I do really know about... I mean, these are private companies, so actually they've got a legal right to do it. YouTube has a legal right. It doesn't fall under the First Amendment, to my knowledge, in America. And second, he was spreading actual malevolent harm. You know, shouting fire in a crowded theatre isn't covered under the First Amendment. So I couldn't muster up too much sympathy. I mean, in that situation, I thought about the parents who'd lost the children and didn't deserve to be stalked by Alex Jones fans. It became trendy for a while to say, I'm a free speech absolutist, right? I think for liberals, it made them feel like, oh, there is something that they were passionate and even radical about. But when you examine it, there's all sorts of cases that are generally accepted as exceptions to free speech. One you mentioned is shouting fire in a crowded theatre. Obviously, planning a terrorist attack or a murder, that's not protected speech. I'll tell you what, the deplatforming works. Alex did a rant against me a couple of weeks ago on a show. Alex Jones did? Against you specifically? Yes. Why? Because I did a, an episode of This American Life about his teenage years. Oh, yeah, I heard that. That was great. Thank you. And you mentioned that during his teenage years, peers of his at high school remembered him running around pretending to be possessed by the devil. That's right. I heard a theory from this whistleblower, Josh, that the reason why Alex became a conspiracy theorist was because at school he'd been a bully like the worst bully at school. And a bunch of the kids he bullied had enough, so they invited him to a party in a barn, but it was a trap, and they beat him within an inch of his life, you know, knocked out his teeth, that's why he limps. And that's why he became a conspiracy theorist, because he'd been the victim of a conspiracy and didn't want to ever be the person who doesn't know what other people know again. So I made a show about that, and Alex went on a big rant against me, and I got one piece of hate mail, like one. And if he hadn't been deplatformed, I'd have had hundreds. Really? Yeah. So deplatforming certainly works. So there's two schools of thought on this, probably more. There's one that says, well, these are private companies. They have codes of practice that apply, that they're completely within their rights to enforce. And if Facebook or Twitter or Instagram wants to kick someone off, that's up to them. Then there's another that sort of says, well, these are more like utilities, and the fact that the president uses Twitter to communicate with the public 
tells you that this is far more than just a service that you can opt in or opt out of. And that Trump was actually, I think, legally, he was told he couldn't block anyone. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, that's right. Because they said, you're the president. You're effectively depriving someone of their civil rights by blocking them on your personal mouthpiece. Personally speaking, I think history has shown that being a free speech... What was the word that you use? A free speech, like absolutist. Yeah. It's a very flawed ideological position. Because, you know, people kill themselves after being powered in on, on Twitter. My last book, you know, was about this topic. And then people try and game the Twitter algorithm. Like what I've noticed lately, there's certain words now that the Twitter algorithm knows are offensive words. And so if somebody, like, insults you with that word and you complain then their account gets suspended. So now trolls and the self-righteous and so on are trying to game the algorithm and are calling other people words that Twitter doesn't realise are insults. And the new word that's being used all over the place is paedophile. Like, everyone's accusing everyone else of being a paedophile now. I'll tell you who I think benefits most of all from that It's paedophiles. It's really bad. You know, reputation matters a lot. And the way that, you know, untrue things spread, it's very, very dangerous. You know, we live in a society where reputation means more than anything. I mean, just look at, you know, in my public shaming book, I write about a pop science writer called Jonah Lehrer, who invented some quotes and so on. He wrote a book on creativity, right? And then in it, he put a quote from Bob Dylan that said, and I'm going to make this up now because I think the reality is too prosaic. You can tell me the real one in a minute. Okay. Man, creativity comes from all kinds of places. I think creativity is like life, man, because breathing is creative. And then a Dylanologist was like, Dylan never says stuff like that. Dylan has hardly said 10 words publicly in the last 25 years because every time he speaks, you know, I know about it and looked it up and couldn't find evidence for the quote anywhere. And then the whole edifice of fiction, well, edifice is too strong, but the skein of fiction that ran through Lehrer's work started to unravel at that point. Yeah, Jonah Lehrer said that Dylan had said... Yeah, creativity is just the sense that you've got something to say. (laughs) It was so banal. At least he could have said, like, Dylan said, creativity is like a train, a freight train running through Duluth of my mind. At least that would be a little bit kind of colourful. Yeah. Anyway, his reputation will never recover. I mean, that's how much we care about reputation in the world. So for me spreading lies about people was a really serious thing. It's identity theft. It's not only really bad for somebody's career and life and reputation, it's also really bad for somebody's mental health because our identity matters a lot. And when you read lies about yourself, especially if those lies then proliferate, it can have a really deleterious impact on someone's mental health. You're looking dubious at that. No, you know what? I'm trying to formulate a thought because I agree with you. But what I find interesting is that there's these two competing narratives and both of them are very persuasive and one is that we're in a snowflake culture in which everyone's being cancelled for relatively trivial infractions right with life-changing consequences you more than anyone is aware of this for misgendering someone you know using the wrong pronoun the allegation is there's a victim culture in which the victims are being bullies and and preventing the free exchange of ideas, right? So that's narrative one. But narrative two is that we have fake news running amok and people given megaphones and platforms with no accountability 
who are doing harm, destroying lives, destroying reputations, because the old gatekeepers of speech and influence are gone. Mm. If I hear you correctly, you're saying, well, neither of the, one of those is overwhelmingly true, and it's just our job to pick our way through this world in which there's a degree of truth in both of those analyses. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. This is why... Being an ideologue, I think, is troublesome at times because if you're too much of an ideologue on one side of that equation, then you can sort of think, well, the other side doesn't matter. But they both matter. It's wrong for people to be disproportionately punished for nothing, you know, for making a joke that comes out badly or for using a slightly wrong word. I mean, to be piled in on and destroyed for that is, you know, wrong so many ways. It's wrong for the person, it's wrong for society, it's cruel. It's also, as somebody said, reviewing my public shaming book, talking about those kinds of stories, she said, that's not social justice, it's a cathartic alternative to social justice. But on the other hand, yeah, lying about people, this sort of wild west of free speech, there's problems with both extremes. Oh, 100%. I'm aware that I'm taking up a lot of your time let me just touch one thing. Oh, I mean, I would love to talk more about just our... We've not talked that much about the fact that, you know, we've led sort of weirdly parallel careers for decades. You know, we've met many of the same people. Yeah, some of the same people. I interviewed Tom Robb. One of my first assignments was to interview the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Harrison, Arkansas. Mm. He was rebranding the Klan as a civil rights group for white people. Yeah, yeah. He was like the first ever sort of politically correct grand wizard of the clan. He'd banned the robes and the hoods and the... He still used the robes because I saw footage of him in the robes, but he didn't tend to get dressed up in them except for special occasions, right? Yeah, the cross burnings. They do it so infrequently that they couldn't... Sorry, people keep... My mum. They do it so infrequently that I was there when they were trying to, like, light a cross or put kerosene all over a big cross in preparation for the lighting. But they were also rusty because Tom Robb wouldn't let them do it more than once a year. They couldn't remember whether to raise it and then soak it or soak it and then raise it. So they're all standing around this cross on the ground, sort of scratching their heads. And Tom went, you soak it and then raise it. How the hell are you going to soak it after you've raised it? And then he looked at me and gave me a look to say, I'm sorry that my clansmen are such idiots, John. And it did make me smile that I was in, like, in the middle of the Arkansas Ozarks and the head of the Ku Klux Klan was basically apologising to a Jew for <laughs> the fact that his members were embarrassing him. I thought that seemed like slightly off balance when it comes to white supremacy. Was he OK with the programme that you made, the documentary? Yeah, he sent a letter completely unbidden. I've got it in a little box somewhere. Something like, if you are thinking of being interviewed by John Ronson, I didn't ask him for this letter of recommendation. Can I say that it was a pleasure being interviewed by John Ronson? And if you're considering whether or not to do it, I recommend that you do. Yours sincerely, Tom Robb, National Director, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> I've never had to use that letter of recommendation, but I had it. So he was happy at the time. Nice to have that in your back pocket. You know, on the subject of getting in too deep with neo-Nazis, when I wrote my book, The Call of the Weird, I visited an ex-Aryan Nation member called Jerry Grudel, and I spent a couple of days with him. I was on my way to the Aryan Nation's 
annual conference. And on my last day, Jerry Grudel, the ex-member, said, I was going to do the accent. Louis, will you do me a favor? He didn't sound like that. And I said, sure, what is it? He said, would you mind taking these burlap sacks up with you? I said, fine, yeah, not a problem. He said, they're for the cross burnings. He explained that burlap sacks are the best material. And I said, oh, yeah, not a problem. And I had a little, I think, a little frisson, a thrill of, oh, I'm in so deep. It's like a Ronson-like moment in which I am being an adjunct to the process. The cross-burning may not even be able to go ahead if I don't arrive like an Amazon delivery man for racists with the burlap sacks. And then I went home and then I was thinking about it and I think, hang on, that's all wrong, isn't it? Like, I can't actually be helping with the cross-burning. So the next day I went back and said, I'm so sorry, Jerry, I can't deliver the sacks. It was a weird case of where puckish first-person immersive journalism, you know, that's based on building relationships, curdles into something wholly inappropriate, right? Exactly the same thing happened to me with Omar Bakri, the very first proper documentary I ever did, Ayatala. So I spent a year with this Islamic militant Islamist leader, Omar Bakri. And after a few months, he said, John, you know, I've allowed you into my life. I've given you everything that you've asked for. I would like something in return. And I said, what? And he said, can you drive me to Office World? Because that's where they get their pamphlets done. Because of their special price promise. If you could find a photocopying service cheaper, Office World would give you your money back. But I did. I drove into Office World. But, you know, we filmed it all and we made it part of the story. And so I'm interviewing Omar while I'm driving him to this sort of secret meeting or on that kind of errand. But we I, we did it because I just thought... Of course. And in fact, in documentaries, quite often you drive... I've become more conscious of it of when you're driving someone who's either up to no good or whose views are deeply distasteful and then at what point your presence is in any way a kind of an encouragement or a part of an an enabling process. So, for example, when I was with the Phelps clan for The Most Hated Family in America and the two follow-up documentaries, I think it was pretty clear I couldn't drive them to their pickets and travelling, although I did do it, with them. You do it because you film on the way there. Mm. I mean, I think it's fine to be a passenger in the vehicle, but you sort of have to interrogate a lot of the choices, you know? Yeah, I've never, other than driving Omar to Office World and so on, I think that's the deepest that I can remember that I ever got in 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 that respect. But Omar Bakri came across in your film as rather, I don't know, maybe likeable's too strong, but he was sort of muddled and a bit disorganised, somewhat warm, offering you chalk ices, joking about what it says in the Quran about farting. And yet, on paper, you know, he's the mother of terrorism in the UK and, and the West. Yeah, and I remember someone from the Board of Deputies for British Jews, a guy called Mike Wine, said that to me at the time, because this I was with Omar four or five years before 9-11. But I remember a guy from the Board of Deputies saying the world hasn't woken up to how dangerous these people are. So I suppose then that begs the question, you've probably been in a situation too, like if you're with somebody before they do something bad, and then you look back and say, well, should I have predicted that? Should I have done the tone slightly differently? So the question is, the fact that Tottenham Ayatollah, that film, was like a sort of carry-on jihad type thing, it was sort of slapstick, should I be pleased with myself for getting that story four years before 9-11? 
Or should I be unhappy with myself for getting the story and missing the fact that these people were terrorists to be? Well, an interesting comparison is my Jimmy Savile programme. You know, after all the stuff came out and he was unmasked as a serial sexual predator, I went back and watched the original documentary. I sort of thought it held up, you know, in as much as it's not a cosy piece of work, it's not really slapstick. The fact that there's a mystery behind there that we haven't got to, right? Yeah. When you watch Tottenham Ayatollah now, your film about Omar Bakri, how does it feel? You know, I think it feels okay. There's moments of unease of people behaving in threatening, scary ways, intimidating ways and so on. So there are moments of unease. But you know what, even if there weren't, I still think it would have been okay. I mean, I would maybe equate it to making a documentary about Hitler, the watercolourist. That still would have value. You know, at times I felt slightly nervous that in this world of, you know, increasing social justice and so on, the more sort of ambiguous stuff like we do, is it going to fall out of vogue? I mean, luckily I don't think it is. And I think it would be wrong if it did, because I think the complicated stuff is, is the most interesting stuff. That was well put, John. That feels like a good big thought to pause the conversation at and notice the fact that I think the producer, Paul, is trying to text me. Thank you so much for taking so long to speak to me. I really appreciate it, John. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. Listen, congratulations on being an American. And the same back, Louis. Welcome to the club, man. You have to talk like this now. It's a lot of fun. When you speak American, you become less inhibited. You're not a stuck-up, kind of limey, uptight little limey prick. Now you can be more relaxed and have fun, cut loose. Welcome to the land of the free, dude. Thanks, Louis. Okay, Paul's come back. Thank you for putting my bit out of its misery. You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest today has been the writer and documentary maker John Ronson. This has been a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds, cobbled together remotely by Paul Kobrak and Catherine Manan. And to hear future episodes as soon as they're available, just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux on BBC Sounds and subscribe. Hi, I'm Catherine Bauhaus. And I'm Sarah Keyworth. We're comedians separately and a couple together, and we're the host of You'll Do, the podcast that gives you a little insight into perfectly imperfect love. Yeah, forget nights in with this one and hashtag couples goals. We want to know the whys and hows of sticking with the people we love and asking a few of the questions that are meant to help us develop intimacy. So why not give it a listen and subscribe to You'll Do on BBC Sounds. BBC Sounds.